I had guests and they were like a bit of high maintenance style guests. I had a number of little ones. There was a lot going on. And obviously I'm going to prove myself as a hostess. Otherwise, what am I worth? And so I did. I outed myself. And then (laughs) as the guest was leaving, she didn't mince words. She's like, you are so stressed and not present. Hi, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to the third episode of Season 2 of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is dedicated in honor of Esther Hanowitz's birthday by her daughter, Kayla Kramer, with gratitude for growing up watching her exemplify the true meaning of chesed and avas yisrael. Thank you, Kayla and Esther, for making today's episode happen. To sponsor an episode or become a supporter on Patreon, please reach out at humanandholy at gmail.com. Today's episode is hitting close to home for me right now. I interview Rifki Kaplan, an educator, lecturer, and yoetzet, about the spiritual significance of simply being. Today, Rifki talks about the diminishment of the moon and what it teaches us about the significance of being, particularly for women. We discuss how the world is really shifting away from its obsession with productivity to celebrate the importance of being present with life. Like the moon, we are called to wax and wane. Some seasons allow us to lean fully into doing. And some seasons of motherhood, of womanhood, of just life itself, demand that we celebrate the importance of just being here right now. Hi, I'm <laughs> um, living in Tzvat, Israel, the Mystical Mountains. We've been living here, yikes, going on almost 23 years. I'm involved in a tremendous amount of teaching and a lot of adult education. I have a number of kids that keep me busy as well. I am a bubby, so I have a granddaughter. No. <laughs> That's so and- yeah, it's crazy. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot more, but I guess you're going to have to ask the questions to bring that out. Okay, awesome. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your Yoetzet program that you just finished? Or you want to save that for later? Do I? I mean, it's almost like a contradiction to the conversation. And so I sort of feel like if I bring that up in the beginning, then I, in a sense, have like shot myself in the foot. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I want you to bring it up just because I I feel like it actually, okay. It gives a very interesting context to what you're saying in the way that it's right. Exactly. Because it is that tension. Look, I'll tell you honestly, and okay, maybe this will come up in the program. You know, when you asked me about what I wanted to speak, that was like my first go-to, you know, I could speak about teaching and I could speak about passion and excitement and all that academic part of me, you know, and it's very real and it's very present. And it's brought me to some amazing places in my life. But I feel like that's the stuff I got as a gift. That's not my Avaida. That's not what I'm working on. That's not what's, you know, keeping me up at night or making me cry in the middle of the day. That's just 
thank you, Hashem, you gifted me. And like, I had the right role models that like enabled me to utilize those gifts. It was never a struggle, so to speak. Whereas I just sort of felt like it would be more productive to myself and maybe to my audience if I spoke about more of something that I have to work through on a regular basis. But we could change that. (laughs) No, I love that. And I have to tell you that like there was in my own brain, there was chatter because when I was like, I'm going to tell Tanya that I want to speak about the diminishment of the moon. Why don't I just tell her I want to speak about being a Yoetzat Halachah? If you're accepted into like an Ivy League program, you're going to start talking about your volunteer work. You know, it was sort of like, (laughs) but that's exactly where the struggle lies. It's accepting yourself in all those places and recognizing where your gifts are and running with them, but recognizing where your challenges are and not running away from them. So it was stepping out of my comfort zone to be like, yeah, let's talk about the management of the moon. When like I so easily could have been like, let's talk about learning. Let's talk about women in Torah. Right. <laughs> That's my field of expertise. <laughs> exactly. I'm so comfortable there. I mean, for God's sake, I'm right. graduated, you know? I really like that you chose this topic specifically for the reasons that you're saying. To hear someone doing the work, specifically someone who is not naturally in that being mode and naturally would be speaking about all those other topics. I think that that's when the idea becomes a lot more powerful. I know for me, I'm very excited to explore this idea with you specifically because of all those reasons that you mentioned. Right. Exactly. Because it's worked through. You've worked through it. Working. Okay. So the topic that I chose to discuss today is going to sound kind of like odd at first. You know, I want to talk about the diminishment of the moon. So I have been really blessed and lucky that I have been teaching young women and not such young women almost as long as I can remember myself. Baruch Hashem, I found myself in that position. And I've also been very blessed that my administrations and the various schools that I worked at just kind of like trusted me to teach what I wanted to. And so I would pick topics that resonated with me or just the opposite that irritated me. And then I would just Mm -hmm. like really upset about them harass all the people in my life about them, set myself a deadline and like get up and like teach it. And that really gave me like ownership of a lot of different subjects. So I found myself very often, you know, whatever topic it was at the center of it was something to do with a Jewish woman. After a number of years, I built like a whole curriculum based on this. And we would start the conversation in with Sarah Minu, which felt like a sort of natural starting point, the first Jewish woman. And I remember myself walking home from school one day and very like agitated because I just felt like the answers that I was providing, they weren't satisfactory. Like maybe for my students, they still were, but for myself, like I had evolved and clearly the girls had evolved as well because the questions were different than what I'd been getting a number of years back. And the pushback was like coming from a different angle, which I welcomed. And at the same point, I was like, something has to change. And I realized, and I thought maybe if I'm going to be teaching Jewish women, starting with Sarah Imenu, is coming in on assumed premises. It's kind of, you're coming in assuming that we know what the role of a Jewish woman is. We know what the role of a Jewish couple is. We understand the notion of a mashpia, of the giver, and a makabal, of the receiver, or the influencer, and one who receives the influence. But I felt like maybe I'm jumping into a narrative that I really have to step back. So I thought about it, and I thought, okay, so maybe the next natural starting point would be Chava, the first woman. And so I spent some time with Abba. <laughs> and, you know, I liked some of the stuff I found. Some of the stuff kind of troubled me, et cetera. But 
I don't remember exactly how one thing led to the next. And I found myself studying about the diminishment of the moon. And there was a particular sikha of the Rebbe where the Rebbe talks about the whole Talmudic explanation about the diminishment of the moon. And by the time I finished that sikha, I felt like I had had this eureka moment. I mean, still talking about it, like moves me to tears because I felt like, oh my gosh, this is our story. This is my narrative. And even though, quite incredibly, the Rebbe never says the word Jewish woman, or woman for that matter, throughout the entire Sicha, but you cannot find your voice within that Talmudic story and within the Hasidic explanation of that story. So I realized that this was going to be my starting point. And so I just absolutely like immersed myself in this particular Sicha, reached out to you know, all the people in my life that I thought can enhance a little bit of the background, etc., made my poor husband absolutely crazy. And then I just got up and I taught it. And I taught it, like, by the time the week was over, I had taught it to 10 different classes. And wow. it, yeah, and it was amazing, the feedback. You know, some of the, it was actually interesting because some of the girls were still so early on in their journey as Jewish women. They didn't quite get what I was so excited about, but I could see the lights going on in some of the girls' eyes. And the amazing thing is that students have reached out to me over the years and they're like, Where's that sicha from? I have to reconnect to it. Send it to me. Like, I feel like I need to find myself in that again. It was just a real moment of clarity for myself. So I'll give you in an abridged version what it is that the sicha talks about. So first of all, we start off in the beginning of Bereshit, where it talks about the creation of the world, right? And so when we come to the fourth day of creation, the Pasuk tells us, the verse tells us that God created two great lights, okay? And then almost immediately after that, it says the Ma'ar HaGadol, the greater light, the Gadol, the bigger light to rule over the daytime, and the smaller light to rule over the night. So the verse starts by talking about two great lights, and within like almost like a nanosecond, we have one big and we have one small, right? So if you're just doing like a very cursory reading of the text, like you're not troubled by this, but we're trained not to do that kind of thing. And the Gemara does us a favor and sort of stops and gives us the backstory. So we find this in Chulin, in the, in the Talmud, the backstory of what exactly occurred. And I'm going to do it a disservice by just giving you an abridged version because you have to read it inside. It speaks like the best drama ever, okay? So with this process, nice. Hashem creates these two great lights and the moon basically approaches Hashem and he says, it's impossible. It's impossible for two kings to use the same crown. And Hashem is like, okay, good point go and diminish yourself. And immediately the moon gets diminished, right? So the Rebbe comes in here and he asks a couple of questions. He says, what exactly is going on, right? Was there like a bug in the system and Hashem never intended to make two great lights and therefore the minute the moon opens her her mouth, she is diminished? Or, but how can we say that? I mean, we know that God created the world. You know, he had the master plan involved. So what really was going on? And what exactly did the moon really mean by saying, it's not possible for two kings to rule in the sky at once. And then the Rebbe goes back and forth with a whole bunch of different questions, as in, because immediately what happens after, and immediately after God diminishes the moon, the moon comes back and she pushes back and she says, wait a minute, I bring to you an absolutely logical argument and I'm the one that needs to be punished. And Hashem engages in this argument and he says to her and he offers her ultimately three different pacifications. And I'm going to list them and then I want to elaborate on them later because that's really where I felt so validated and so heard. The first pacification that Hashem offers the moon, he says, you will rule in the day just as you will rule at night. And the moon was like, what difference does the moon make during the daytime? Like if you put a candle in a lit room, no one's going to notice. 
So then Hashem offers the second pacification, which is that the calendar will be set by the moon. And the moon counters that by saying, well, the sun also has an influence on the Jewish calendar, right? Because we know that our Chagim, our holidays, have to align with certain seasons, which, for example, is why we're going into now a leap year where we'll have an additional month so that the holiday of Pesach will align with springtime. So that was our second pacification. The moon is not taking this. The moon continues to push back. And so God offers her a third um, pacification. And he says to the moon, all right, just know that throughout history, there will be great that will be called small. And he lists a number of examples, Shmuel HaKatan, David HaKatan. And then the Gemara continues and says something so incredibly powerful. It says that on Rosh Chodesh, and you see this, you see this in the text of the prayer that's specific to Rosh Chodesh, the various sacrifices that were brought during the temple era and that we read about, that we pray about on Rosh Chodesh to this day, there's a particular carbon that's an atonement offering. And the question is, who is this atonement for? And the Gemara explains that God asks that every single Rosh Chodesh, an atonement offering be brought to atone for the fact that he had to diminish the moon. So we have these two great lights. One of them opens her mouth. We have our first example <laughs> of where negotiations comes into our history. And ultimately, Hashem engages with this, offers her three pacifications, none of which he's satisfied with. And God recognizes that. And he says, bring for me an atonement offering. So the Rebbe goes on and really pulls apart this entire sikha. And the Rebbe says, like, what was going on? Was the moon right or was the moon wrong? If the moon was right, why is she, so to speak, being punished? And if she's wrong, why is God engaging with her? And why is he offering her three pacifications? If you're wrong, you're wrong. You know, deal with it, right? So clearly there's something much more to it than was going on. And the Rebbe explains this by helping us understand what is it that the moon was saying in this sort of cryptic message, can there be two kings and rule in one sky? So in essence, and I'm, and I'm bringing in other chassidut in here also to help us understand, is that the moon was created with a feminine energy of what's known as the Mechabel, so to speak, the receiver, right? And according to chassidut, and I say that because there are other opinions out there, even prior to the diminishment, the moon received her light from the sun. But you wouldn't have known it because when you looked at the moon and the sun, they looked as equals. So in her kind of sensitive, intuitive manner, the moon approaches God and she says to God, like, what's the plan here, right? Didn't you want to create the world so that mankind could strive, so that mankind can contribute? If you're going to make the giver, the mashpia, and the makabel, the receiver, as absolute equals, you're going to pretty much rob the world of the ability to do anything because it's going to be no tension created where growth can begin. So what do we mean by that? Let's say think about a rich man and a poor man. Think about a teacher and a student, right? We have yin, we have yang, we have vessel, we have the earth and we have rain, etc. Everything in the modality in which the God created the world was there is a giver and there is a receiver. And the reason it's done in that way, because it's in the tension between the giver and the receiver, the man steps up and he fills that void, right? So you have the wealthy and you have the poor. Now, what we have to remember is that from God's perspective, the wealthy and the poor are absolutely equals. The God is providing for the poor person using the rich person as his intermediary. From God's perspective, you have a giver and a taker, and they're absolutely equal. But that's from God's consciousness. 
And the moon was saying, if you want to create a world where it's going to be led by creature consciousness, you need to create a paradigm where there is an obvious giver and an obvious receiver and allow for mankind to stretch out of their comfort zone and fill that void, because that's what makes us the unique person that we are. And so Hashem, when when, when the moon brings this argument, God is like thrilled in a sense. He's like, you got it. You understood, you intuited, so to speak, exactly the kind of world that I want to have. And immediately the moon is diminished. So in other words, God always intended that the moon should be diminished, but it was critical that the request come from the creation because it had to be a creature conscious request because that's where that enables the ability for us to reach upward, to strive, to cross the valleys, to cross the chasms that are created and become better versions of ourselves, right? From the onset, the moon was a receiver, so to speak, right? But they were of equal light From a bottom-up perspective, you would not have been able to distinguish between the giver and the receiver. The moon senses that this is going to create a problem because imagine if every teacher thought his student understood everything. If every parent thought that their child had every single need already met. If every rich person said, ah, the poor person can manage without me, right? Where would the growth begin? Where would that ability for us to step out of our comfort zone and be there for somebody else, right? So that's in a sense what the moon was saying. And Hashem says, you're totally right. And the moon is diminished. And it's very interesting because the terminology that the Gemara uses, it says, like go and diminish yourself. And the word lechi, some of you may be familiar with, we have it when we first meet Avraham and he's told lech lecha, go. Go and journey. It's not a one-time journey. It's like a continuous journey. It's the story of our history. And the moon understands that. And the moon understands that she's not being diminished for the sake of the diminishment. She's being diminished for the sake of regaining, so to speak, her lost light. But we will do that with her. And when I say we, it means all of humanity collectively. I think it's the feminine energy specifically. And us as Jewish women maybe even more so targeted in that journey, right? So the moon understands that she's not being diminished for the sake of diminishment, but she has to immediately work towards regaining her lost light. And so she pushes back and the pacifications that God offers her, each one of the pacifications is very telling of our journey because let's start with the calendar. Back in the temple era, how did they know when it was the beginning of the Jewish month? They waited for two human witnesses to show up at the courthouse and say, we saw the new moon. And then all the sages, human sages would gather, ascertain that they were valid witnesses and declare at that moment that the new moon had started and it was a Jewish month. And then they would make bonfires on all the hilltops so that the rest of the country would be filled in on this. It was a more recent, so to speak, invention that we know ahead of time when the calendar is going to be because we lost the skills, you know, when the temple was destroyed, etc. But for many long periods in our history, the calendar was influenced by the creation, right? By mankind. It was a bottom-up kind of influence. Whereas the seasons, that's really like, it's up to God, you know? We have no way for us to, so to speak, move around the seasons. What we can do is we can add a month so we will catch up with the seasons. But again, that's coming from a bottom-up perspective, which shows, which is exactly the modality that God wants in his world. He wants us to be actively involved 
in not just doing good, but creating a calendar. Like every moment, every week, every month is something that we can have a direct influence on, right? So that's one of the pacifications. The second one is the idea about there will be greats in history that will be called small is really a tremendous, tremendous lesson. Because what he was saying is that a prerequisite to greatness is smallness, so to speak, is humility, is recognizing your strengths, recognizing your weaknesses, recognizing, you know, little me in the bigger picture, and yet not shying away from that and continuing to work towards making a better version of yourself. And ultimately, you know, we have greats in our history, but they were called small because even in their place of greatness, they personified this notion of humility. And that's also a very powerful message because if we're talking about a giver and a receiver, right? We have been indoctrinated that a giver is in a higher position and the receiver is in a lower position. And so what Hashem is saying, no, 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 my friend, you can be great and you can still be small, so to speak. And it's not, not only is it not a contradiction, but it is a prerequisite because in my eyes, you are both great. And that's, I think, one of the most powerful lines that I take from this whole story in the Talmud is that the fact that there's one small light and one big light, that's only from our perspective, From God's perspective, the sun and the moon have remained two great lights. And we're working towards that. There's actually a prophecy that shows up in Isaiah, which talks about that once again, you know, once we've kind of like worked through all of it, once we've gone through this journey, once we've waxed and we've waned, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times, then we will get to a place where we will bring the world consciousness to an understanding that both a giver and a receiver are of absolutely equal greatness. But we struggle with that. You know, we struggle with the idea. And this really takes us into the third pacification, which is actually offered in the Talmud as, as first, but the Rebbe analyzes it third. And my personal take is because it's one of the hardest ones to swallow. And the Rebbe explains what's the idea of the moon during the daytime? It's the notion of simply being. In other words, does the moon really have, so to speak, this role, if you will, during the day? No. The moon during the day is not the life of the party. It's not bringing the people out to the beach. It's not making the flowers grow. It's not calling, oh, wow, what a beautiful sunshine day. And it's interesting because it says that the moon during the day is often referred to as a child's moon because it takes a certain innocence that a child still has that he notices the moon in the day. Because why? We have become so accustomed by judging ourselves, by judging others, by our accomplishments. You know, like they say, we're no longer human beings, we're human doings. I think what Hashem was telling us with this message with the moon is like simply being there and aligning yourself with what I want of you is absolutely good enough, period. And I think that we struggle with that so often where we don't gift ourselves with the ability to just be present because we say, what am I accomplishing? I'm not knocking anything off my list. I'm not being productive. And Hashem says, are you in the sky during the daytime exactly where I want you to be? That's good enough. And if it's good enough for God, why can it not be good enough for us? And for whatever reason, it's like so elusive. And very much like the moon, you kind of think you figured it out. And just then you begin to wane again, you know, like every full moon is kind of followed by a diminishment. 
And every diminishment, of course, is followed by a growth. And this is my opinion. Why the Rebbe talks about it third is because I just think it's the hardest one to sit with. I mean, I speak for myself, but I don't think I only speak for myself when I say that we struggle with simply being. Now, simply being doesn't mean like becoming a couch potato. And you know what? Sometimes it's really just a mindset. You know, like you could be super productive, but being present in that productivity is also the gift of being versus just trying to get it done for the sake of moving on to the next thing so that you can then mark that off your list so that you can be considered within your own critical little policeman that hangs out there or others, the way they judge you or not, you can show them that you've proven yourself in that regard. And then also extremely moving part of the story is that after all these pacifications, God realizes, you know, that what he's asking of the moon is difficult. It's not an easy place to be, to be the, so to speak, macabre from a creature's perspective, to be on the, so to speak, receiving end. And I want to just add here kind of parenthetically, but it's not parenthetically because it's really a whole discussion in and of its own. But when we talk about a mashpia and a makabel, a giver and a receiver, Hasidut helps us understand that they really are so integral one to the other because you cannot have a giver without having a receiver. You cannot be a king if you don't have constituents, those that will accept your kingdom, right? So on one hand, you have this big giant king, but if you don't have people that are going to accept him as their monarch, he's going to be a king without a kingdom. And so... On one hand, Hasidus, like again, I'm kind of parenthetical here because on one hand, Hasidus does talk about the intrinsic relationship between the giver and the receiver, and ultimately you receive only to birth exponentially greater than that which you have received. But that's kind of in a way a more advanced stage, if you will. But when we're talking about growing up in our world, a giver and receiver don't always get equal understanding, you know? And when you kind of grow up, as I did, Baruch Hashem, blessed in a from home, with Hasidus, sometimes get this like mixed narrative of like, what is a mashpia? What is a makabel? Were we destined to be second class citizens? And somebody is just trying to pull the wool on us, you know? And then when you see this here, you know, God recognizes that what he's asking of the moon to do, even with all these pacifications, is not easy. It's difficult. And so he says, every Rosh Chodesh, bring an atonement offering for me. And to me, it's sort of like a such a tangible hand-holding where the Abishter validates the grit and the guts and the vulnerability that are involved in being in that feminine role of the receiver in 2021. And he says, I'm totally there for you. And know that from my perspective, you're absolutely equal. And yet, if we want to have a dear betachtonim, if we want to have a dwelling place, if we want to get to a place of absolute rectification, someone's going to have to do the work. And so... Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel smacked in the face. Okay, here's my question. No, you should I, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Maybe I'm misunderstanding, but the part about being, I find so beautiful. The idea that the moon just existing in the sky... Hashem designating the moon as existing in the sky is enough that the moon doesn't necessarily have to prove themselves by shining in a certain way. And that could often be something that women wrestle with is I just have to be with my children. I just have to be present. I don't have to do anything. So recognizing that that is a God-given task and that 
Yeah, exactly. And being is actually doing the greatest thing, just simply being. Absolutely. That is so beautiful. And I want to explore that more. Before we move on, though, I have a question about the diminishment, because the emphasis on the diminishment seems to be that even prior to the diminishment, the moon was simply a reflection of the sun. Yeah. So regardless of the way that we see it, it's about being a receiver. You're having a hard time saying that because you've been totally, not you, but we have been totally influenced by the Western way of thinking that somehow being a receiver makes you less than. Why are you... No, why I'm not comfortable with that. Why? Why? Because it's not, it's not the receiver word. It's more just that the moon is simply a reflection of the sun. And yet look at the unique role that the moon has. In other words, the moon receives, no question. I mean, scientifically, this aligns as well. You know, the moon receives its light from the sun and yet creates. And that's really the kicker is because ultimately it's not about being the receiver. It's about being the receiver so that you yourself can birth a new entity. You understand what I'm saying? I'm very interested to hear how that explanation has comforted you in feeling like, oh, am I second class? And we're just pretending like I'm first class? How has that made you feel like, no, I'm actually first class? (laughs) Or are you like, no, 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 I'm actually second class and I feel good that someone's validating it? Not at all. Not at all. So first of all, I have to tell you, I no, no, no. First of all, I have to tell you, I was raised in a home where my dad was like, whatever men can do, women can do better, you know? (laughs) And truth is, where was he getting that from? Because my dad was born, raised in Israel and then moved to America. So it's not like he was inoculated by like the Western culture. He got that from the Rebbe's teachings. And so I was kind of like raised on that. And then my own questions and own realities maybe came into play. But to me, when I read this story, I sort of felt, so this is the interesting thing. Like none of this was an absolute chiddush. Like I knew this story in the Gemara. I was somewhat familiar with it, but I wasn't ready to embrace it yet. I wasn't yet ready to sit with it. And when I saw it, it was like the right time at the right place. And so it suddenly, it like just woke up like, so much within me came alive when I heard this, right? So first of all, the idea that from God's perspective, we are equal. So that's totally non-negotiable. From God's perspective, we have always remained equal. And yet the world needs to be created. Somebody needs to birth the child. And women were gifted with that role. And kind of like the moon is foretelling of that process. The moon receives the light, okay? And then births like an entire new reality at nighttime, right? We just had here in Israel, the meteorite showers, which the entire country was going crazy about, including my five-year-old. He can tell you about the dust that's made when the stars, you know, combust. It's so cute. So my whole family is obsessed with the moon, I have to tell you. <laughs> Down to my, my one-year-old granddaughter, we know we go outside and we look at the moon. So in other words, so that's number one. Number one, from God's perspective, we have always remained equals. And like I said, The feminine role is that of being able to receive, but not receive for the sake of receiving. To receive in order to give so much more than what we have received. And again, why did this exactly align that for me? It's hard for me to say, you know, because your life is made of so many parts. And like I said, it was the right thing at the right time. But somehow when I read this, I had this visualization of like, There's this huge task out there and someone needs to do it, you know, and we have that particular skill set. We were gifted with that particular skill set 
that we can do it. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that the world is going to appreciate it. But we have to kind of like rise above that and redefine ourselves from God's perspective and like sort of plow on and be able to continue to do what it is that we were uniquely gifted to be able to do, including and often motherhood consists of simply being. I'm wondering how being aligns with doing more with what you're given. So you're receiving more in order to give back even greater. But then the emphasis is on the moon simply being. So how do those two coexist? So I think that they coexist. And I'll tell you in my own life, I haven't found the perfect formula. But I have found comfort in the fact that the moon goes through phases. And sometimes there's a full moon and you feel it within yourself. And it's crazy because so many women can relate to that. When I was like totally obsessing about this subject, my immersion, like my tefillah, aligned with the full moon. I went from having a period on a set day to like my entire being shifted so that I came out of the mikvah and I was greeted by a full moon. And this went on for a number of months. Beautiful. Yeah. And that's when I knew that like I owned it. You know what I mean? So I'm saying is that I don't think there's a perfect formula. And I, and this is exactly where the tension lies, where I think the whole world is coming to appreciate this notion of being present of being self-aware, like it's not just something that we've reinvented. It's always been there. And I think that it got stormed out with all the other noise and all the other expectations and all the other bars, high bars that we set for ourselves. And I think that as we get closer to that time when the light of the sun and the light of the moon will be equal, we're re-understanding where our strengths lie. And so can I say that I found the perfect formula about being? No. Do I struggle with that numerous times a day? I really do. But at the same time, I also have started to give myself grace and recognize that some days it'll feel right. And some days I'll feel like the full moon where I figured it out. And then it becomes, again, like a little bit of an elusive stage. And the hope is that when I revisit that, it's sort of like a spiral where I'm just that much more present than I was in this same act at a different place. I'll share something funny. This past Mitzay Shabbat, we had a little goodbye party. One of my sons was leaving and it was like 1030 at night and we were just starting. And like my kids looked at me and they're like, Ma, is this you? We're starting in Malamaka at 1030 at night. And like, I took that as the biggest compliment because for, to me, that was a goal. It was a goal to just be present, not try to figure out that the kids are going to go to sleep late and that they're going to wake up big fetchy and that they might come to school. You know what? That will be dealt with. And obviously, I'm not advocating having a lava maca at 1030 every single night. But the fact that I was able to be aware that this is where I wanted to be and this is where I needed to be and this is where I would replenish myself. And so, yeah, it meant letting go of being productive, and it meant let it go of preconceived notions of what a house has to look like on Matzei Shabbat. And remember, Sunday is a regular school day, a regular work day here in Israel. So that always kind of influences it. And then it was just, I was like, yeah, it's 1030 at night. And then my daughter's like, Ma, if this is where it's starting, where is this going to end? <laughs> <laughs> Slippery slope. Right? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm excited to see, you know? So I don't have the perfect formula, but I get comfort in the fact that if you're stuck in a place, 
you'll move out of that place. But even that is a notion of being. In other words, trust the process, like lean into the process and recognize that whatever challenge you're facing, I'm not saying throw your hands up, but like do what you can, but don't get frustrated if you don't see the results that you're exactly kind of pursuing. And just like, okay, I'm here now and this too will pass. And then I'll be able to accomplish a little bit more and maybe I won't. And that's clearly what God wants of me right now. He just wants me to be the moon in the middle of the day, seemingly doing nothing, but being exactly aligned with where he wants me to be. I love that story, first of all. And I'm, I'm going to set aside my personal hangups about diminishment to focus on this tension between being and doing, which I really see that if the moon does not see the being as something valuable, which is natural because it's not something shining and it's not something that people point at in the sky, then it becomes challenging in our own lives to really be able to prioritize and even just feel good about those moments or seasons of simply being. So can you share with us a little bit about how that tension between being and doing shows up in your life and how this has helped you reconcile it? So how does it show up? It shows up all the time because I have an inner critic that lives right here. (laughs) Between her eyebrows. Right near my brain and the brain chatter is really loud, you know, and I try to find a balance between being there when my kids are around. And even if I'm cutting up supper or like today making dinner to send to a friend who just had a baby, but I'm there when my kids are home and I'm available and I'm accessible. Can I improve on being present? Yeah, for sure. You know? And I think one of the reasons why I chose to talk about this topic is because it's a work in action. It's constantly something that I need to reevaluate in the different stages of my life. I have to readjust, you know, my baby's five now. I have a large family. And so I have certain things stuck in my head, like, no, we can't do that because we have like a bunch of babies around. But wait a second. No, we can do that. Like I took the kids kayaking the other week. And like, that's not something that I could have done a couple of years ago because like the babies are too little to go and who are you going to live the babies with? And like, you know, so I'm like, as your family moves into different stages and ages, being is going to look different. So for me, the truth is the struggle is in quieting the inner critic and telling myself if being is good enough for God, then it's got to be good enough for you, you know, on a regular basis. Because I would have the tendency to push, 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 push past what's healthy because that's what's considered like being productive. And if you're productive, then clearly you're valuable. And if you're valuable, then, you know, it just goes on. The rhetoric just continues and kind of spirals out of control. I love that the basis of being is basically accepting that you have nothing to prove, like really deeply accepting I have nothing to prove. And therefore, it's safe for me to just be. And specifically as a mother, in the way that you're saying, that means just being with my family, even if I'm not doing anything productive. Exactly. It's a real struggle. And you know what the truth is? I remember having, this is like years ago, but I'll never forget this. I had guests and they were like a bit of high maintenance style guests. I had a number of little ones. There was a lot going on. And obviously, I'm going to prove myself as a hostess. Otherwise, what am I worth? And so I did, like I out in myself. And then <laughs> as the guest was leaving, she didn't mince words. She's like, you are so stressed and not present. 
You Thanks know? for having me. Right, right. But you know what? It was a, such a valuable lesson because basically what she was saying was it would have been much more valuable had you lowered your expectations and actually sat with us at the table and been available to connect with. And I was like, wow. I mean, obviously the comment hurt. Like I go back to that. Like would I want to just do one more thing or like buy the little hostess gift or do this? I was like, no, it's going to stress me out. And then I'm not going to be able to be there. And that's really what they want. And I Mm. think people, you see that for yourself. You know, you go to somebody's house and they're so busy tchotchking around you. You're like, I didn't come for that. Like I came to be with you, you know? I think our spouses, our children, our friends, our students, you know, like sometimes you could give a class and you get so caught up on your PowerPoint and on your worksheets and making them so graphically attractive and like, but you're not actually there. And I think that's the struggle of being is recognizing that like, that's what they want is they want your essence. And sometimes you crowd that out with all your accomplishments and the struggle is to get back to being okay with being, and it's really silly because that's all they want. So really the person who's not okay with that is the one in the mirror, because if really all your spouse wants is you and you're busy putting together who knows what kind of dinner. And then by the time he comes home, you're too distracted or too flustered or whatever it is. Don't worry. It's been a long time since I made that mistake, but really it comes back to we're the ones, or I am the one that has a hard time with being able to accept that. And that's why when Hashem offers this atonement offering, I sort of feel like he recognizes that it's not going to be easy. He recognizes that this diminishment thing is going to take a lot of work. And for some people, maybe it comes more naturally. I think for those of us that were maybe gifted with this doing muscle, it comes a little bit harder. But I have to tell you that since I learned the Sicha, I've pretty much never missed saying Mosav on, on, um, on Rosh Chodesh. <laughs> Because that's where you talk about this. And for me, it's just like a very tangible way in which I connect to Hashem holding my hand, being with me through this journey. So beautiful because you're speaking about being present with your family, with your friends, with your guests. I always used to think that presence was something that you sort of gave to other people, but I'm really understanding that presence is something that first happens inside of yourself. If you can get into this headspace where I am enough, just simply being is enough. And that just giving that to someone else as a gift, then the presence you give to other people is really just like a natural extension of the internal state, as opposed to an action of putting down your phone and and making eye contact. And right. And and what's ridiculous almost is that we get so caught up in the externalities, you know, like when you have a guest, whenever it is, you spend a lot of time thought and it's, it's appreciated. I'm not saying it's not appreciated, but that's not where it lies. That's not where it's at. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you in that regards. And I, I want to say, just to go back for a second, the story of the diminishment of the moon, in a sense, without elaborating on it, was the precursor that enabled the sin of Chet Etzadat, the tree of knowledge. For for a lot of re- for a lot of various a lot of ugh, for various reasons, the fact that diminishment was introduced and that things were now being uh, propelled from a bottom up, from a creature conscious place, i.e., the moon was kind of like you know at the negotiation table, that laid the grounds for Chava to make some pretty big decisions 
which ultimately leads her to eat from the tree of knowledge, where it brings us to the world where we're at. But it also, one of the byproducts, if you will, or one of the curses, more harshly put, that Chava received is the whole notion of nida, which is the whole process of when a woman menstruates, et cetera, and the impurity that's introduced, which necessitates her separating from her husband and then ultimately immersing in the mikvah. So I'll just say from a personal place, this whole story with the moon, like this moment that I had where I found the sicha and like I just literally like marinated in it for like a year or more. And then almost like immediately following that, I applied to and got accepted to a program, which you had referenced earlier, the Yoetzer Pelecha program, which I just graduated from. So it's been two plus years. Mazel tov. Yes, thank you. To the program. And at one point in the program, I was just sitting and I was thinking about it, that like my personal journey followed the trajectory of like the greater journey. You know, like I had to embrace what it is about the moon that bothered me, that resonated with me, the feminine energy, the macabre energy, the ability to just be. And when I kind of like got comfortable with that and when I owned it, all of a sudden this new opportunity opened up where I was able to study the halachot of Tarat Mishpacha, which dictates, you know, all the ins and outs and the intricacies of the Nida state and brings us to a place where in a sense we're rectifying what happened with the sin of the tree of knowledge which, like I said, it was put into place with a diminishment. And when I realized that, it was like a wow moment for me because it was something I'd been wanting to do for a long, long time. And yet when it happened, it had to happen like that. Like I first had to embrace the diminishment. I first had to own it. And then Hashem said, okay, you know, here, take this. It's yours. Oh my gosh. Okay. That is so beautiful. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking about how there's actually something so honest about acknowledging that there's something in a sense imbalanced about the dynamic between the masculine and feminine energies, not in a disempowering way, but in a gullus exile way. And we could be part of rectifying that. So that is beautiful because in a way it actually acknowledges an imbalance that is like humming beneath the surface that no one really wants to voice. What do you mean? We're so empowered, which we are. But then also understanding that there is sort of this dynamic that Hashem set up in exile that we could work towards rectifying, which I think is something that the rubber really was doing. He was shifting something and we are shifting something when we A, accept the being and B, understand what it means for us to do in a feminine way. Absolutely. Beautifully said, Tanya. Beautifully said. I'll tell you another very powerful moment for me throughout all of this was actually, so like I mentioned, I'm a bubby, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> Every time I say that, I still get a kick out of it, which is why I mention it very often. <laughs> I'm a bubby. Uh, I can't believe you're a bubby. You're so young to me. Okay. <laughs> I am so young. You're, you um, are a young bubby. Okay. I'm a young bubby. Anyway, so I was very, very blessed to be able to accompany my daughter at her birth. And it was a first birth, which you could probably relate to more than I could at this point. So the kids are, so we're like into like, I don't know, 27th hour of like active labor or whatever. The midwife's name, the midwife, the primary midwife, her name was Ta'ir, which means to bring light. And then at one point, she brought in a second midwife whose name was Rina, okay, which means joy. And being a seasoned mother, I could see this sort of like secret language in their eyes that like something they were concerned about, you know, and then they called the doctor and they started wheeling in machines. They couldn't quite find the heartbeat. And my daughter is just like doing her best. And she has an incredible doula and I'm holding her hand. I'm like, I knew it was going to be okay, but like we... You have to birth this baby. So at one point, I let go of her hand. And like, I went around to see what was going on. 
And I just like called out. I'm like, Mamala, Mamala, you're crowning. You're crowning, Mamala. I could see the head. And like, I'm telling you at that moment, it was like an out of body experience because what I was like viscerally feeling, what I was witnessing was the macabre merging into the greatest mashpia. In this notion of crowning, which is the feminine energy of Malchut, which really birthed the world, right? So you have a woman and she's the Makado. She receives the seed, right? And encapsulated within it is the potential for life. She nurtures it. She takes it with her. She throws up. She gets to this pregnancy. She talks to this child. And, you know, and then that moment comes when the Makabel becomes the Mashpia. And in that moment, when I was like, Mamala, Mamala, you're crowning. And it was like, when I processed this for like months, you know, like it just went over in my mind. I felt like Hashem had sort of like given me a gift because for so long, I struggled with this notion of Mashpia and the Kaaba. And I'm like, what you said, is it like this that we are like slightly less than and nobody wants to talk about it? And we've created all this nice euphemisms to empower ourselves, but maybe there's something that someone's not telling me, you know? But when I could see this, it was the most godly moment of my life. And it was exactly this struggle of the Mikabel merging into the greatest form, the most godlike mashpia possible. And it wasn't lost on me that we use this terminology, crowning, because that's exactly what it is. It's a feminine notion of malchot, you know? Beautiful. So, of course, in true moon style, I held on to that moment and then I lost it. But I wrote it down because I revisit it. And when I have those moments, when I get confused and you would think like, get confused, you've been teaching this. Don't you own this? But yeah, you do, because the world sometimes just sells you crazy stuff and you buy into it. And so I go back to that and remembering that, yeah, it may seem as if the macabre, so to speak, is on the lower end of things. But ultimately, when you are in your greatest role, you know, and think about what pregnancy truly is, it's being at its greatest. I mean, not that anyone should experience this, but you could have situations where you'll have, and this, unfortunately, this has been medically proven, where you could have women who are hooked up to life support and they're able to go through with pregnancies, you know, because they're being, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing that you have to actively do. I mean, now with Western medicine, we're more aware, take these pills, take that pills, go for that ultrasound, et cetera. But it's kind of like you're just totally present in in this incredible gift that you're given. And so you receive and then you birth it further. I love how you said the term crowning is malchus and even just crowning the woman with this beautiful gift of being, just being for those nine months, created a child. I think it's interesting because a child really is the most productive thing any human being could do. You create a human being. <laughs> and yet it feels like when you're pregnant, it feels like a really passive thing that you're doing. And you could forget that you're pregnant. Or well, you could just be like, forget. you probably won't. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, you don't really forget because the baby reminds you in, in various ways. But like that being is actually the most productive thing. And I, lo- I love that you're saying that because I think that there is a certain reshifting. So I'm interested to know what you think about that. Is there something active that we do to rebalance the energy in the world, to reclaim the initial power of the moon that will be when Mashiach comes? Is that something that we're actively working towards? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the Rebbe really led 
that march and that campaign, if you will. You know, it's been written about in far better terminology that I can use. You know, like the Rebbe was like the ultimate feminist because the Rebbe really was able to zone in on what was unique about the feminist energy and empowered us to step into that. And so without question, we're working towards that place where there will be a greater appreciation for the more subtle elements of life, for the nuances, for the notion of being. And we have can all play some kind of role in bringing that about. And look, it's not by mistake that there's been all this feminist movements that are going on. Now, obviously, some of it is misguided, but it's not coming from a vacuum or this notion, this like reawakening about being present. I mean, there's so much talk about that now. Every third podcast is about being present and being aware and et cetera, et cetera. So where is that all coming from? As we get closer to that place, you know, as where the prophets tell us, where the light of the moon will be equal to the light of the sun, we're tapping into that. And what does it mean, the light of the moon? In other words, that feminine energy of the Mikabel will finally be appreciated for what it's worth. And we will stop judging ourselves by our accomplishments. And we will start judging ourselves by the unique skill set that God gave us. So the light of the moon being equal to the light of the sun doesn't mean that the moon proves itself as being worthy of doing, but that the moon is so comfortable and the moon is celebrating the worth of being to the extent that the entire world can really see how powerful it is. And you do see that shift where people are trying to move away from being workaholics and obsessed with accomplishment to being present. Excellent. I would say it's not just that the moon being aware, but us creations will become aware. In other words, mankind will come to a place where that will be the greatest commodity, not Mm -hmm. what you have accomplished, not what schools you got into, or not the size of your paycheck, et cetera, which is such an easy way that we judge people. We'll move away from that being the barometer of success to understanding that the barometer of success is being aligned with what God wants you to be. And it's interesting because Corona in a very large way, sent that message home. It's amazing how many things had to shift. And all of a sudden, people began to appreciate things that were not given, you know, the right amount of appreciation. And where suddenly things were put on the pedestal that would never, ever in a pre-corona world have been put on the pedestal. Something I think that makes being difficult is the fact that it feels like the present is here forever. (laughs) It doesn't feel like an opportunity that you're going to miss in the way that ambition does, in the way that work does. It feels like something that doesn't change because presence is just right here, right now. So it seems eternal. It's hard to hold on to it. Mothers talk about the endless days, the endless pregnancies, things like that. Right. But you know what? I think that the answer lies in exactly what you just said. If we would actually be present, we would realize that that's not the case. What happens or something often feels endless when we're just trying to get it over and done with. When it's in the way, when we're trying to get something mm. else done and my child is calling for my attention, it feels like the afternoon is forever. Kids in Israel right. come home at one o'clock. Okay. The school day ends wow. at one o'clock, right? Wow. Afternoons can feel like forever, especially when you're trying to multitask and knock things off your to-do list. So I think the answer lies in exactly what you said. If we truly were present, now I'm not saying that that suddenly makes you Mary Poppins, but what I am saying is that recognizing, like actually being in your body, like being here, you know, will help us appreciate that it's not going to be forever. And if I'll just focus on what the Abishta wants of me right here and right now, because this moment isn't coming back. 
Not in like, yeah, read- like a, a scary kind of way. But this child is not going to be celebrating his birthday, this number again, you know. And so if I'm not going to be present, it's a lost opportunity. Any tips you have for somebody who has not yet been able to really sink into the state of being in their lives? So I wish I had the magic formula and it's not for lack of looking. <laughs> I'll tell you even myself, like it's so ridiculous, right? So I just graduated this Yuatsa program, which was two years of like absolutely intensive, insane amount of studying. And to my credit, I all along knew that I wasn't going to do it until my baby wasn't gone because I knew that I had to be present in my studies and present for my kids. I mean, the joke is that my baby went to Ghana. I started my program and then Corona hit. So all the kids came back home. But that's for another time. <laughs> and you were still studying. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, my baby going to Ghana aligned with this whole moon obsession. But mm. so there I was like, and then as the major exam loomed closer and closer, I mean, the studying was just insane. And I, I had a long list of all the things that I was going to do. Like my kids called it ATT after the test. And the test was over. And the next day I got nothing done. And then the following day, I also got nothing done. And I'm like, wait a second, I was studying 17 hours a day. Like I have 17 extra hours in my day. Like, why am I not getting anything done? And I, I was beating myself up for it. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like you have so much you put off so that you could focus and you're done. And then all of a sudden, like, I was like, stop. You know what? You hit a full moon. You gave it your all. I thank God I had the support system that I needed. And now you're waning. And that's okay. Lean into that. Be kind to yourself. All the lists that you'll do after the test, you'll do it the following week. You know, you're done. You're drained emotionally, physically, mentally. Every part of you just needs to wane a little bit. And like, I had to like literally talk myself out of this place of beating myself up for not getting done all the things that I wanted to get done after the test. So that's the tip that I want to share is that tell your inner critic (laughs) to go for a walk. What do I mean by that? Like, instead of thinking about all the things that you haven't done, think about all the moments where you were present. But also in order to be able to do that, recognize the value of that. And recognize how if the Abishter put you in this moment, it's because he wants you right here. What will happen in a few moments, you'll get to that also. But by worrying about what will happen in a few moments isn't going to change what's going to happen then, but it'll just rob you of being where the Abishter wants you right now. So what I do for myself when I get to those places where like, I didn't get this done, I didn't get this done, I didn't get this done. I do two things. First of all, I tell myself, well, you know what? Think about all the things that you did, not just get done. But think about the little moments where you were just available, where you were, you know, where you were being accessible and present and value those moments. They're as, or I would even venture to say more valuable than the things you've got on your to-do list, right? The second thing that I'll say is that lean into recognizing, and I don't have the science to back me up, but I'm sure that science exists, that we like the moon, women like the moon, we go through phases, And sometimes we'll feel more productive and we actually will be more productive. And then there are moments where it'll be like elusive. And then those moments just lean into being and embrace that. Now, at the same time, having said that, for me that I need to hear that, because like I said, my default is do, 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 do. If somebody that's listening to this podcast and their default is just sit around, sit around and sit around. I want us to understand that sitting around and being, they're not the same thing. 
I'm addressing like the more natural instinct to accomplish, 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 accomplish. And when we don't, the inner critic pipes up and we beat ourselves up and that doesn't lead us anywhere good. So my tip is recognize those moments when you were present and also recognize that like the moon, you will go through phases. I love that visual of waxing and waning, that it's not that we don't have our periods where we can lean into productivity and doing, but then the day that it's over, we might find that we begin to wane simply because we also need to return to that state of being. And it's a huge part of who we are as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And again, there's no perfect formula, but like I see for myself, like sometimes there's like this big task that I need to do and I keep pushing it off, you know, and then one day I'll just do it. And like, I'm excited to do it and it goes well. And like, I even go past like the point that I intended to. And I'm like, why was this such a big deal? And I'm like, cause I wasn't there. And I think it's important to start. It's tricky, but like, listen to your inner voice. And sometimes you're in a productive place. And sometimes you're in a different kind of a productive place and lean into that and listen to that soft voice and try and be able to filter out and understand what it is and where it is that you're supposed to be at. Beautiful. Thank you. You're so welcome, Tanya. That was so nice. (laughs) Oof. So much food for thought. You know, Tanya, it's non-ending. It's really a non-ending journey. Yeah, totally. Like the moon, we are in a state of constant flux. Some nights shining bright and full in the sky, with so much capacity to give. Other nights disappearing into the shadows. Pure essence. As of this recording, my baby is less than two months old. I am deep in my season of being. And while I've heard people speak about this topic before, there was a nuance in Rifki's words that really drove the message home for me. I realized that sometimes we look at presence through the lens of productivity. We look at being as another thing to tick off our to-do lists. We think our presence is an action that we do for the people we love or for ourselves. And when we're done doing it, we'll move on to the next thing. But true presence is not about doing something for someone. It's about being there with them, fully. If we surrender to the presence that is requested of us, if we allow ourselves, as humans, mothers, friends, to really shift into being, to deeply recognize that our worth is not tied to our accomplishments, but to our essence, that our moon days will be less focused on what we have done that day and more on what state of mind and heart we were in. Sometimes my babies wake at night not because they need anything from me. They just want to know that I am there. They hold my pinky finger as an assurance of my presence and then they drift back into sleep. I am moon girl. Some days I am whispering in the sky you probably won't notice me. I cannot do anything for you. Many would say, I am hardly shining, but I am here. I am here. I am fully, deeply here. 
אלוקיי זקנינה בתורתך ובמצוותיך לחבר את נשמתי תמיד אליך Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day. 